time for us to begin our third session in evangelism for the faint-hearted. You should have some notes. You'll need the notes as we continue to go through those on page 11. So let me review quickly what it is we've covered in the first two weeks, and then we'll pick up where we left off last Wednesday. But this class is Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted, and we've defined evangelism, that uh, we get the word evangelism from the Greek word in your New Testament that's translated gospel. This is in the opening pages of those notes that you have. But uh, we get that from euangelion, and angel means messenger, that prefix you means happy or good, and so we get good message, good news out of it. So the gospel is the good news. So evangelism is the process of giving the good news. An evangelist is one who who does that. The evangel is the gospel message itself. So it's evangelism for the faint-hearted. Why are we faint-hearted? Because sin uh, means that you don't have a ready reception for this good news. Unless God works on the heart of an individual, then the natural reaction is going to be negative to... The idea that you're a sinner, which is the very first component of the message that we have to convey. The good news is only good because of the the bad news precedes it. And most people don't want to hear the the bad news. So you may be rejected. You may be ridiculed. uh, You you may uh, not know some answers that the person might put to you. And so for all of those reasons, there is often a hesitancy to engage in evangelism, even though... It's something that the Bible tells us we're to do. So what I'm trying to do in this class is to remove some of those hesitancies from us. And in these first few weeks, I'm trying to do that by giving us a proper motivation to overcome being faint-hearted. We're all faint-hearted at some times. Even the Apostle Paul was fearful, we saw, in giving the gospel sometimes. So much so that the Lord himself needed to appear to him to buck up his courage. And so that being the case, then we need to overcome that faint-heartedness. One way to do that is for us to, to be motivated by understanding why it is we do this. Why it is that we give the gospel. What's the, what's the purpose for it? And I've given, you, uh, I've given you three reasons in your notes. There's three principles that will help us overcome our fear of giving the gospel. One of those is the principle of imitation. And that is, when we give the gospel, we're imitating God. We're imitating the heart of God, who is really the first evangelist. It is God who takes the initiative and goes after people in order to bring them to himself. And so when I, when you, engage in evangelism, you're doing what God God does. But that principle of of imitation is not just that... God does this kind of thing. God has a heart that goes after people and invites them to have a relationship with him. That's all true. But this principle of imitation goes beyond that because in giving the gospel and in seeing people transformed by the gospel, those people then become imitators of God. So the principle of imitation is kind of twofold. One, you're doing something that God that is God-like in going after people, in loving people enough to give them an invitation to a relationship with God. So it's imitating him in that sense. But also, God's purpose in all of this is so that 
his crowning achievement in creation, namely humanity, who alone are made in his image, would imitate him, reflect him back to him. So we saw two weeks ago that you could tell the story of the Bible as being a story of mirrors that God created in his image that were designed to reflect his character back to him. But because of sin, those mirrors have been cracked. They've been broken. And so what God sees is still a reflection of his image, but now a distorted reflection of his image. And salvation, deliverance, rescue that comes through the gospel is now God repairing those mirrors. One day, the mirrors that we all are, the cracked mirrors that we all are, will be completely made whole. And we will be a full reflection of Christ. So the gospel does that. And we went through, in that first week, a number of passages in the Bible that show us that. That God is restoring the image of Christ into people in whom the image has been not obliterated, but it has been it has been marred by by sin. And all of that adds up to a word that we use often in church, but don't often think about what it means, namely glory, the glory of God. The glory of God is the display of his character. And it also is uh, involves our response to that display in praise. Doxa is the Greek word in your New Testament for, for glory or praise. Doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So the glory of God is the display of his character. And he, dis- he, he made us in his image in order for us to display what he's like. So when we engage in evangelism, we're imitating God. Because he has that kind of heart. We are creating imitators of God. Because now the mirrors are being repaired. And that can be summarized as we're bringing glory to God. Because the glory of God is the display of his character. We're displaying his character by being evangelists. Because we're doing stuff like he does. He's like that. And we're also being used by God to help people become imitators of him. Starting the process of seeing their uh, seeing their broken mirrors repaired. All right, so that's what we have we've looked at. Page eleven. Then we looked at the the principle of of imitation. We looked at a couple of other principles as well. The principle of privilege that it's a privilege to give the gospel. A third one is the principle on page ten of gratitude. We do this because we're grateful to God. All of those should be ways in which we overcome our natural fear, faint-heartedness. But then I've been concentrating uh, at the end of or as part of week one and all of last week on looking at the gospel itself and what is accomplished in the gospel as a means for us to overcome our faint-heartedness. It's my hope that in doing this, that you will in effect, that I will in effect fall in love with the gospel again. Having seen what God in Christ has done and does for people in the gospel, that that will be a motivation for us then to be used as his instruments in order to give that message. That's why I'm spending so much time on this. Now, I think we will finish the chart that's on page 11 tonight, and you will get new notes next week. If we don't finish the chart, 
you won't get new notes. Bring your old notes back, back with you. But I, think, but I think we will. And in looking at that chart, top of page 11, you see that there are six things that happen in, in the gospel. That the gospel is, we had defined it as, on the previous page, the message of God's grace. And that God's grace has overcome our sin through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son, our, our Savior. So God has overcome our sin in his, in his grace. And that overcoming our sin, delivering us from our sin, rescuing us from our sin, saving us from our sin... All of those are synonyms for what happens when the gospel has effect in the life of a person. It involves these six things that are listed on the top of page 11. We've covered the first two. That in the gospel, God's grace delivers us from the persuasion of sin, the persuasion of sin. And in turn gives us a new perspective, new eyes and and new ears. Now that delivering us, rescuing us, saving us from the persuasion of sin is called, left side of that chart, top of page 11, the effectual call. If you weren't here last week or if you forgot what that is, these messages are recorded. They're at our website. You can go back and listen. So that's the effectual call. It delivers, rescues, saves from the persuasion of sin, gives us a new perspective. We saw last week as well. That those that God calls effectively, effectually, it has effect on them, that God also does another work. And that work is regeneration. That word regeneration means to give spiritual life. God gives spiritual life to those who were previously spiritually dead. And the effect of that is then that God's grace in regeneration and giving spiritual life to the previously spiritually dead means that God's grace delivers, rescues, saves from the power of sin. So effectual call delivered from the persuasion of sin, regeneration from the power of sin, and it gives us a new heart, a new heart. And as a result, we have, as a result of that, we are able to exercise faith and repentance. You see on the right of that chart, top of page 11, regeneration delivers us from the power of sin, gives us a new heart, so that now we can exercise faith and repentance. Now that may be new for some of you, this idea that you just can't naturally do faith. You can't just naturally conjure up belief. But it's true. You can't. God has to do it. God has to breathe new life into the spiritually dead person. So theologians say it this way. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration comes before faith. You can't have faith until you're made alive. You're made alive so that you can then have faith, which the word means believe. So when the Bible tells you to believe, commands us to believe... The problem is we don't have the ability to do what it commands. God's got to give that ability. You say, well, that's weird. God's going to command me to do something that I don't have the ability to do. Well, it's not as weird as you think. I mean, just think about, like, uh, all of God's commands, like, say, the Ten Commandments. Who's got the ability to do those? That would be nobody. 
But God still commands them. And God commands them in order to show us our condition, in order to show us our sin. We're not able to do it. And so we see our need for a deliverance outside of ourselves because we don't have the capacity to do it. We're dead in, in sin. So having been made alive, we can now believe. And we can now repent. And so we talked a bit about what faith is, believing is, for salvation. I said, you could define it this way, it's to accept the gospel as being really true. To accept it as being really true. And I underscored that idea of really. Because there are, there are such things as false professions. Where people accept the facts of the gospel. Yeah, there was a guy named Jesus, and yeah, he, I believe he died on a cross. But they believe that to be really true in all of its significance as it applies to them individually. So, uh, this ability to believe is something that God has to give. In the famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through believing, through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? This faith. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. This faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can can boast. This is why, friends, we pray to God to save people. Think about it. Have you ever thought about that? Why do we ask God, save so-and-so? It's because so-and-so doesn't have the ability to do it themselves. God has to do it. The very fact that we pray to God and ask God to save people is evidence of what the Bible teaches. Namely, those people don't have the capacity to do it themselves. God has to do a work in that person. God does that work in the effectual call, in giving spiritual life and regeneration. And then as a result, the person is able to believe. They're able to express faith, accept the message of Jesus as being really really true. Now, one author has used an acrostic to describe what uh, faith is. So using the word faith and giving five points on that. And let me, uh, let me share those, those with you because I, I find it to be helpful. So you take the word faith and F-A-I-T-H and each of those letters represents some aspect of what it means to, to accept as really true. So the first letter, F, represents facts. Facts. This faith through which we receive this salvation is not based on a blind leap into the unknown or the unknowable. It's based on the facts of God's redeeming work through his son, uh, Jesus Christ. And to further show the importance of the facts surrounding the gospel, Jesus' death and burial and resurrection... You find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul starts out that marvelous chapter, 58 verses. But he starts out by saying that I delivered to you, first of all, what was of most importance, namely the good news, the gospel. And then he goes on to talk about the facts of the gospel, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These are the the facts of, of the gospel. And so somebody has to accept those facts first. A, secondly, 
That would represent agreement. Facts and agreement. It's one thing to know the truth. It's quite another to agree with it. And so the believing heart affirms the truth that it receives in the gospel. So there are facts. There's agreement with those facts. And then thirdly, there's internalization, internalizing what it is that you've received. It's this inner desire to accept and apply the truth of the gospel to that person's to that person's own life. So you've got internalizing. And then T is trust. In fact, in some places in the Bible, trust is a synonym for faith. But it also carries the idea of having unreserved confidence in God, trusting him to keep his promises, never forsake us as his children, and to provide all of our spiritual needs. And then lastly is H, representing hope. Every believer is delivered, rescued, saved in the hope of going to live eternally with God in heaven, although he's never seen heaven or seen the Lord in whom he has placed his his faith. So you've got the facts, you've got the agreement with those facts, you've got the internalizing of those, you've got trusting in God to keep the promises that he has made, and then you've got this hope that the gospel gives to the person who, who receives it. And all of that's made possible, believing, having faith, because God takes the initiative in making that person alive. Okay? Everybody good? So you express faith, but then right side of that line on top of page 11, there's faith and then there's repentance. Faith and repentance. Repentance, the word in your New Testament, Greek word means meta, it, the Greek word is metanoia, and it means literally change of mind. And repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. A change of mind that leads to a change of life. Change of mind about God. Prior to the gospel, prior to being made alive, prior to being delivered from the persuasion and power of sin, prior to that, we had a particular view of God. Hostile to God. Or, if not expressing that hostility toward God, molding God into our own image, making him what we want him to be. We had our own notions about God. Repentance means changing your mind about God. It means changing your mind about yourself. When you come to God through the gospel of Christ, you're having a radically different view of yourself. I'm dead. I can't do anything. I have to, I have to bow myself before one who had to do everything for me in the gospel. That's saying something radical about me. That's how bad I am. So you have a change of mind about God. You have a change of mind about yourself. You have a change of mind about Christ. You know, prior to coming to God through Jesus Christ, so who's Jesus? You know, what, what, what did he do? What's that all about? And now he becomes everything to you. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He's your Master. You want to please him with your life. Repentance, change of mind leading to a change of life, a change of mind about God, about ourselves, about Christ, and about our purpose in this world. We're changed so that now we live for something, no, someone, different than we lived for before. All of that happens in the gospel. God gives new life to a person so that they're released from the, the power of sin in regeneration. It results in faith and repentance. Now, dear friends... 
there are people who say, believe it or not, that repentance is not necessary for salvation. Lots of people say that. You just believe. You don't have to change your mind about your God and about yourself and about sin. You don't have to reject your sin even. Just believe in Jesus. You might reject your sin later, say they. I'm going I'm to prove this to you later tonight if we get there. That there are people who say this. You might reject your sin later. There might be a change in your life later. But it's not necessary, say they. All that's necessary is for you to believe. And believe is defined as believing the facts about Jesus. Not all that other stuff. The agreement, the internalization, the trust, you know, the hope, all of that. And certainly repentance is, is not part of it. So in their view, to say that you have to repent is to add some kind of work to salvation. But repentance isn't work. Repentance, like faith, is a gift from God. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. 2 Timothy 2.25. Paul tells Timothy there how he needs to behave with regard to people who oppose his message. And he tells them how to behave and do this, behave in this way, in hope that God will grant them repentance. That's what it says. God will give them repentance. So repentance is not a work. It's a gift of God like faith is. God gives this new life, delivering us a new heart, giving, delivering us from the power of sin. And then in turn gives us the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. And they both happen at exactly the same sacred moment. Faith and repentance. You can't have faith without true, genuine faith without repentance. And you can't have repentance without faith. They go together. You can't believe faith in who Jesus is, think about it, without repenting of sin, can you? Biblically you can. But even just logically you can. I mean, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Savior from from our sin. Jesus is God having come in the flesh. How am I going to say I believe that and not change my mind about how heinous sin is? That God himself had to become man in order to take care of this. To believe that, to have faith in that, requires that I change my mind about sin. To change my mind about sin, I also have to believe the truth about Jesus. And so faith and repentance go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So note, with all of that, those two of the first six aspects of the gospel message, effectual call and regeneration, both of those are the work of God. The effectual call is the work of God on the heart, on the spirit of an individual, and that precedes the work of man, the response of the individual. The work of God precedes the response of the individual. So God does the effectual call. God gives this new life, and then we are able to, to respond in repentance and faith. All right. So here we are into our third week in this class on evangelism. And you thought you were coming to strictly a how-to class. 
how to seal the deal when selling the gospel to somebody. When making your gospel pitch, here's how you should do it. Here's a good way to do it. Here's how you can wrap it up. Here's how you can make the invitation. Now, we're going to do some of that in this semester. We're going to look at ways to approach people with the gospel. Circumstances in which you're able to approach people with the gospel. But obviously, we haven't started there. We're going through we're going through all of this. And the reason we're reason I want you to understand that as we go through all of this, it's all about motivating you, motivating me to actually engage in evangelism. So that we see the beauty of the gospel once again. We're grateful to God for that. We thank God for the privilege of being able to do that. We remember that this is all part of imitating his heart and creating people who will imitate his character and glorify him. And therefore, I want to to do this. I'm laying all this stuff out. But you need to understand, when you present it to somebody else, you're not telling them all this. So I'm going through all of this for you, for me. You do not want to subject some poor soul. At work, in your neighborhood, in your family, and say, let me give you the gospel. And then you pull out Pastor Ken's cute chart. And then you give them three weeks worth of this stuff. So understand the reason I'm doing that is for us, for our motivation, to understand all that's involved in the beauty of the gospel in all of its aspects. All right. So third on your chart, there's effectual call, there's regeneration, and you see there, there is justification. And justification is uh, deliverance from the penalty of sin. You see that on the screen, small font, but there it is, the penalty of sin. And it gives us a new record. So justification in the gospel delivers us from the penalty of sin, giving us a new record. We're cleansed by the blood of Christ and we're clothed by his righteousness. Romans chapter 4. And if you don't have it, you can just listen as I read. But Romans chapter 4 is one of the passages in Scripture that deals with this idea of justification. Verse 1, Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather... Discovered in this matter. Well, discovered in what matter? Well, it's the matter about which he's been talking for three chapters. Paul, who wrote this for the first three chapters of Romans, has been talking about this matter of how can we have a relationship with God. And so, what do we say about Abraham? What happened with Abraham? Verse 2. If, in fact, Abraham was justified, do you see the word there, justification, justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? And then verse 3 quotes the first part of your Bible, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. 
It's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul's trying to marshal the case in the book of Romans. That our deliverance, our rescue, our salvation comes not by what we do, but by what Christ has done. And we believe in that. And that's how we have standing before God. Before That's how we're justified before God. So he's trying to make that case, but he knows in order to make that case, he's got to deal with Abraham. Because Abraham's the father of the faithful. Abraham's the beginning of the Jewish nation. So wasn't Abraham justified by his works? And Paul says no. He believed God. And he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. He believed God, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. Now, I'm going to talk about then what just to be justified means and this crediting in just a bit. But he goes on to say in verse 4, Now, when a man or woman works, when a person works, their wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the person who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, that person's faith is credited as righteousness. So Abraham believed God and it was credited, counted to him as righteousness. If that weren't the case, if Abraham or anybody else were justified by their works, by what they do, then salvation would not be a gift, says Paul, but rather would be an obligation. It would be like a wage. You did the work. You earned it. There you go. But that wasn't true for Abraham, and it's not true for any of us as well. Believing, then, is credited as righteousness that you don't have. So when we come to people with the gospel, we say, here's the bad news. You're a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. The previous chapter has just said that. We're in Romans 4, but Romans 3, verse 23, has just said that. Just a few verses earlier, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we start with the Romans road, if you're using that. The Romans road starts with chapter 3 and verse 23. The wages of sin is death. You, you tell somebody that. And so you can't, you can't have a righteousness before God of your own because you don't have righteousness. Neither do I. So where are you going to get it? How are you going to get righteousness such that you can meet God's standard? And one day you're going to be able to stand before God. And in the words of the great hymn, Jesus paid it all. And when before the throne... I stand in him, what? Complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Right? What are you going to have when you stand before God? And the answer is nothing. Because you don't have righteousness. Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says. That's Romans 3.23. I said I said that wrong. That's Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 is the wages of sin is death. Okay. Some of you just exhaled, said, Oh my. Alright. We're good now. 
So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. You have nothing that you can bring before God, so how are you now going to have something to bring before God? What's God's standard for letting you in? Well, it would be pretty high. Uh, Matthew 5.48, Matthew 5.48. This is Jesus. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, okay, we're in trouble now. I've got to be perfect. Why do I have to be perfect? Because God's absolutely holy. He's not going to tolerate sin. So now how's he going to tolerate me? How am I ever going to be able to stand before him? And justification is the Bible's teaching on how God gives you a new record even though you have a criminal record. Every one of us before God has a criminal record. God gives you a new record. Now, how does he do that? He does that because he credits to you stuff you haven't done. Good stuff you haven't done. He counts it, credits it to you. So this idea of, it's uh, in the King James, it says he, he imputes it. You guys remember that word, imputes, credits? Those are accounting terms. So imputing, counting, crediting. This is what God does. And he, in effect, has a ledger, an accounting ledger. And he's got your name at the top of this page in his ledger book. So he's got Ken. And then he's got, on one side of that, he's got... Um, he's got my sin. And so I'm debited an, an infinite amount that I can't overcome. But on the other side of the ledger, he credits me. And he credits me with two things. He credits me with the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus, both. The death of Jesus on the cross is credited to those who come believing in him. And so what he accomplished on the cross by shedding his blood pays the penalty for your sin, your sin in the past, your sin in the present, and your sin even in the future. His blood on the cross pays for all of that. But see, if it's left there, you still don't get to go to heaven. Because what happens is, all that does is give you a new record in terms of what you did wrong. It just makes you even. On the one side, i got a criminal record. On the other side, he's credited the cross of Jesus to me so that now I've got a blank slate. But blank slates don't get to go to heaven. In fact, the Bible says this, without holiness, no one will see God. See, I've got to have positive righteousness. So I've got crimes to my account. An infinite criminal record against an infinitely holy God. That penalty is paid by the death of Jesus on the cross, but now I'm just even. I need positive righteousness. And where do I get that? Well, you guys have heard me say lots of times on Sunday morning, 
Christ died the death that we deserve. And he lived the life that we should have lived. So you get the, the benefit of his death on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin, but you also get the life that he lived. And that's what justification is. Justification is this. Justified means to declare, to pronounce. It's a judicial legal term in the Bible, to declare, to pronounce. And the idea is that God, the divine judge, declares the person who comes to Jesus believing in him, he pronounces him, he declares him to be not guilty. And not only to be not guilty, but he declares him to be positively righteous. So not only is my old record washed away, I'm given this positive righteousness, the righteousness that comes from the perfect life of Jesus. So if you came to the Lord when you were six, or you were 16, or you were 60, whenever that sacred moment happened when you believed, God did a work upon your heart, and you believed and you repented, God justified you. He declared, he pronounced that you are no longer guilty. Your record is gone. And you have the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's what justified means. Now, some of you have heard justified um, defined this way when you were in Sunday school, maybe, and it's good as far as it goes. Justified means just as if I'd, just as if I'd never sinned. That's a good way to remember it, just as if I'd never sinned. But see, what I'm telling you is it's more than that. Because if it's just as if I'd never sinned, that's just paying the penalty. But it's more than just paying the penalty as if you've never sinned. It's giving you positive righteousness. So on this ledger that's yours, you've got your sin, but you've got Christ having taken your sin on the cross and paid the penalty, credited, and then you have credited the perfect righteousness of Jesus' life. Completely new record. And now you stand before God, not as a criminal that's guilty, but you stand before him as his child who's been completely acquitted and credited with righteousness. Now, should that affect the way you live? If that's all true, and it is, and that's the good news, and we're not done. There's still more good news. But if that's the good news that Christ has done this for me, should that affect the way I live? Absolutely. He's done all that for me. He's, he's paid the penalty for my sin. He's given me the benefit of his perfectly righteous life. should have profound effects on your life every day. You live in light of the fact that I stand before God complete. And I have the righteousness of Jesus. How should that affect you when you sin? First John tells us. First John chapter 2 says don't sin. But if we sin, we have one who is an advocate with the Father. Our legal representative before God. That's what advocate means. 
So what do I do? I remember that when I sin and what a crummy, big, fat sinner I am, when I remember that, when I experience that, and when I go through the remorse for that, which I should, yet I should also turn my attention to the fact that Jesus has justified me and I have the righteousness of Christ. Paul did this. The end of Romans chapter 7. Paul goes through that whole litany about his own um, his own schizophrenia. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death, he says. I mean, it's really a morbid passage at the end of Romans chapter 7. Look at how horrible I am, says the great apostle Paul. You can fit you in there. You can fit me in there. Look how horrible I am and who is going to deliver me from this? But then he ends that chapter. He doesn't stay there. I counsel people who struggle with sin and they wallow in the guilt of their sin. And I say, if you belong to Jesus, then you ought to see it as a heinous thing. And you ought to acknowledge it as a heinous thing. And you ought to confess it before God and those that you've wronged. All of that is true. But you don't stay there. I say, look, you don't stay in Romans 7. There's a reason there's a Romans 8. The end of Romans 7 says this. After, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the next verse is verse 1 of Romans 8. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How is he able to say that in chapter 8? It's because of what he said in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And in chapter 3, about this issue of justification. There is no condemnation because the penalty has been paid and his righteousness has been given. And God has declared you to be right before him, righteous before him, even though in reality you're not. Because it's not your righteousness, it's Jesus's. And that's why verse 5 of Romans chapter 4 says God justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. You see, in every other every other religion, even so-called Christian versions of religion, God only justifies the godly. Why? Because it's works religion. You work... And you make yourself to be as godly as you can. And God then declares you to be right based upon how well you did. Good luck with that. But in the gospel, I mean, that's an amazing phrase. God justifies, God declares to be righteous the ungodly. So it's not you living up to his standard. He already knows you can't do that. It's Jesus is the only person who ever met the standard of God's absolute perfect righteousness. And that's applied to you when you come to him believing who he is and what he did. 
So that's justification. You get this new you get this new record. Now, having gotten that, there's a fourth aspect of the gospel. Precious aspect of the gospel that the Bible teaches multiple places. And that is that God's grace delivers us in adoption. Do we have that? From the position of sin. And gives us a new family. God becomes our father. You could write there out to the right. God becomes our father. Christ becomes our brother. Let me just pause and wonder. As one preacher says. Christ becomes our brother. Jesus becomes our brother. Hebrews chapter 2 says of us. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We come into the family of God now. We were alienated from the family of God, but now we come into the family of God and he becomes our father and Jesus is Jesus is our brother. So remember where we were. What was our position before all this is happening? Our position was we were alienated from God. Our position was we were outside of the family of God. Our position was we were orphans spiritually. God is not our our father. And now we are adopted into his family. We have to be adopted, by the way. We have to be adopted because we're not naturally his children. By nature, Ephesians 2 We are children of wrath, children of disobedience. We're adopted into his family so that we become then his his children. Our position has changed from one of alienation to adoption. And we now have a new family. God's our father. Christ is our brother. And then for every other genuine Christian there, every other born again, regenerated person, justified person who's believed in Jesus... We become brothers and sisters with with them. Now let me take a few minutes to talk to you a little bit about what this issue of adoption is like in Scripture. There are a number of adoptions that are meant actual adoptions mentioned in Scripture, some of them in the first part of your of your Bible. But one of the most precious is the adoption of a kind of obscure figure named Meshibatheth. This is the son of Jonathan, David's uh, best friend, Jonathan. Now, you remember who Jonathan is? Jonathan is the son of Saul, King Saul. David and Jonathan become friends. Jonathan has this son, and David adopts Mephibosheth, and it pictures God's adoption of us. Let me tell you how. David took the initiative in seeking out Mephibosheth and bringing him to the palace. 
Although Mephibosheth was the son of David's closest friend, he was also the grandson and sole heir of former King Saul. And you remember who Saul was. He repeatedly sought to kill David. So, and this Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. So he was helpless to render any service for David. He could only accept David's largesse, David's benevolence. His very name, Mephibosheth, means, quote, a shameful thing. A shameful thing. He lived for a number of years in a place that means a barren land. And so King David brought this outcast to dine at his table as his own son. He graciously granted him a magnificent inheritance to which he was no longer legally entitled. That's a beautiful picture of the spiritual adoption whereby gracious God graciously and lovingly seeks out unworthy men and women, boys and girls, on his own initiative, and he makes them his children solely on the basis of their trust in his true son, Jesus Christ. Because of our adoption, believers will share the full inheritance of the son. So if you're adopted into God's family, how long will you be a child? The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Do you know how long you will be a son or daughter? As long as Jesus is. How long will that be? This means that there is no such thing as God disinheriting one of his children. When you're adopted into his family, you stay there forever. You will be there as long as as Jesus is. Now, this idea of adoption may, for some of you, have the ring of a second-class person in the family. But that's not the way adoption was in Paul's day. In Roman culture, an adopted child, and especially an adopted son, sometimes had greater prestige and privilege than the natural children. According to Roman law, a father's rule over his children was absolute. If he was disappointed in his natural son's skill, character, or any other attribute, he'd search diligently for a boy available for adoption who demonstrated the qualities he wanted. If the boy proved himself worthy, the father would take the necessary legal steps for adoption. At the death of the father, a favored adopted son would sometimes inherit the father's title, major part of his estate, and would be the primary progenitor of the family name. Because of its obvious great importance, the process of Roman adoption involves several carefully prescribed legal procedures. The first step totally severed the boy's legal and social relationship to his natural family. Second step placed him permanently into his new family. And in addition to all of that, all of his previous debts and other obligations were eradicated as if they had never existed. For that transaction to become legally binding, it's also required the presence of seven reputable witnesses who could testify, if necessary, to any challenge of the adoption after the father's death. The point is, they took it seriously. And Paul's writing in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, about this idea of adoption. To people who knew about that process. And he says this with regard to 
adoption. Verse 12. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It's an amazing thing, a precious thing, isn't it? That we're the children of God, adopted into his family, and and therefore we cry out to him, Abba, Father. So Abba is Aramaic. When Jesus uh, walked the earth, that was the language he spoke, was Aramaic. When Jesus prayed the disciples' prayer, the model prayer for his disciples, and he started our Father, it was Abba. He spoke Abba. And it means roughly the equivalent of Daddy or Papa. Now you think about where you were in relation to God and through the gospel. You're now adopted into his family with all of these legal rights as a co-heir with Christ. And God will never disinherit his children. And you have a close and intimate relationship with God that you can come and call him Abba. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 7 teaches the exact same thing. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. So, brothers and sisters, how many people need this message? I mean, is that a great message? That God in the good news of the gospel does all of that? Do you have anybody in mind that you would love to see be a child of God? Have a new record? Have a new family? Have a new perspective? Have a new life. You got anybody? Well, you should. You step a lot to them. Should motivate us to give the gospel because it's through the gospel, through the good news message, that God is pleased to do all of that stuff. And further, there's numbers five and six. Uh, God finishes what He starts. So God starts all of that. But he finishes what he starts. And that's what the fifth thing is. Uh, fifth aspect of the gospel. And that is the good news of God's grace. And the gospel delivers us from the practice. You guys think you have that? The practice of sin. And it gives you a new life. A new life. So you've got a new perspective, a new heart, a new record, a new family, a new life. Now the new life piece is present. You see, those other four are all past. Those are all things that happened. They all happened simultaneously at the moment 
You heard the good news of the gospel and the spirit of God breathed life into you. All four of those things happened and you received Christ as your savior. Bowed your heart before him as Lord. All four of those things happened simultaneously. So we put them on a you know chart just so we can understand them. Understand they all happened at the exact same time. You were justified and adopted at the exact same moment. You were given this new perspective and this new heart all at the same moment. But now, in the present, God is still at work in your life. You're his child. You'll never not be his child. And he's at work in your life, delivering you from the practice of sin. Now, this is our experience. All that other stuff was our position. All of that other stuff was things that we were, we were passive in. They were all things that God initiated and God did. And then we responded in faith and repentance. But now, we're called to live a new life. And he's at work in your life. He's at work in the life of every person who comes to him. And he will never not be at work in the life of his children. So sanctification is the term for delivering us progressively from sin so that we no longer practice sin, but rather practice righteousness. And God is at work in that, but we work with God in that. You know, the effectual call, I don't work with God in that. He does it. Regeneration, giving me new life, I don't work with God in that. He has to do it. I'm dead spiritually. But in sanctification, I work with God in that. God works in me, works in you, and we work with him because we want to, we desire to. We want to obey him. So, um, there's a decent bit I want to say about sanctification. So I will. Uh, in the remaining 60 seconds that I have. So, but here's what we'll do next week, okay? Um, we, will, we, will, we will finish this paper. We'll finish the, the stupid chart, okay? And then we'll move on to uh, aspects of giving the gospel. But right now, I just you know, want you to understand what the gospel is in its fullness. And this idea of sanctification, one of the things I want to spend some time talking about is that there are people who teach wrongly, just like they teach wrongly that you don't have to repent in order to come to Christ. Those same people teach that you don't have to, repentance, remember, is a change of mind leading to a change of life. Well, if repentance is not necessary, then there may not be any change of life, but that's okay. Say they. That's wrong. Because God finishes what he starts. God starts this work, but he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And we're going to pray and be done, and I'll talk about some of that next week. But, hey, listen, uh, some of us here have had already a really lousy week. And I don't mean just a lousy week in terms of my boss is a hassle and, you know, all of that. And the traffic was hard getting here. I'm not talking about that. That's all, that's all bad, too. No, I'm talking about a lousy week sin-wise. 
You struggled with sin and you lost. And what I'm here to tell you, though, is God still got you. He finishes what he starts. He's at work in your life. And if I had time to sit down with every one of you, we could find evidences of that. But I can't, of course. But look no further than the fact that you're sitting where you are right now. That's evidence that God's at work in your life, is it not? It may be that you didn't even want to come. But God's still at work in your life. He got you here. And he got you here so that you could recall the beauty of the gospel and who he is and what he's done for you. In order to motivate you anew to forsake that sin that you struggled with this week. The mere fact that you are here right now, even if you didn't want to be here, but the kids are in Pioneer Club, so you had to drop them off. While they're there, you need to stop in here and listen to me blather on. I mean, if that's the way you came into this room, and I have no doubt that some of you did. That it's just that bad for you. But here you are by God's appointment. God's at work. He will not let you go. He finishes what he starts. But that means that he is at work removing us, separating us from the practice of sin. We're going to see that next week then, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who have come under whatever circumstances they have come. You know them all. And Lord, you overrule uh, our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for overruling our hearts. We, we are, we can't, a leopard cannot change its spots. We can't change our hearts. But Lord, you have, and you can, and you do. And so, Lord, we are here by your appointment. We are here, in some cases, even though we didn't want to be. In other cases, we most definitely did want to be. And we wanted to hear your word and be taught from your word. So we thank you, Lord, that you have worked alike in each of those circumstances. So that we could hear anew the beauty of the gospel. Help us to contemplate it. Help us to thank you for it. And help us to respond to it in the only appropriate ways that we should Understanding what a privilege it is to be called your children and to be your ambassadors. To represent you in your world. Help us to go and do that tomorrow in ways that perhaps we didn't at the beginning of this week. Lord, we ask you to grant us your power to do that. Holy Spirit, we ask you to work in us so that we desire to do that and we do it in ways that honor you. We ask you, Lord, to providentially guide our circumstances, to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.